So we've been working through the book of Genesis together. Uh, we've spent about five or six weeks to get to Genesis chapter three. And we just didn't want to blow past all the goodness of God and his creation like we so often do. We talked about how important it is to have a Genesis two gospel, a Genesis two good news, and not just a Genesis three that starts after the fall. And so we've been working our way through that to do that and really seeing that this garden is amazing. It's paradise. That, 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 that it was so good and glorious because God loves us so much that he wants us to experience all of who he is with all of who we are. And Moses wrote the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch, the other, five, the other four books, uh, the first four books of the Old Testament, for the Israelites as they were in the wilderness, is what most scholars believe, so that they could be connected to their history. And they need to be connected to their history so they can be connected to the God of their history who will send Jesus to redeem them. That's the whole reason. And what we see uh, is that um, Genesis 3, as we look at this, uh, explains why we are the way that we are. It explains these questions that we have where you might ask, how in the world did I end up in this situation? Or how in the world did I end up making that destructive decision? Or how in the world did those words come out of my mouth at the Little League football game yesterday? That happened. How in the world am I in this place? Today we get the answer. Today we see where it began. But what I'm noticing is it began differently than I typically think it did as I look more deeply at it. And I think, I think none other than the, the game of Jenga will help us understand this. Anybody played Jenga before? Now they get like the big Jenga with two by fours. That thing is crazy and wild. But this is Jenga if you're unfamiliar, okay? Jenga is a game uh, that, is, that is predicated on the fact uh, that you're not going to have a steady hand and that your partner is going to be able to create such an unstable structure for you that when you just touch it, it's going to collapse. That's the whole goal of Jenga is that, is that, that it would be uh, such an unstable structure for your opponent that as soon as they touch it, it would collapse and they would lose the game. I think this is how we ought to view Genesis chapter three, the more that I read it. Now, let me remind you of the kind of the grand meta-narrative of the scriptures that we can so easily forget. It's, it, it starts with creation. We've looked at that the last five or six weeks. Creation, then it moves to the fall, where we're looking at today. And then it moves from the fall to redemption and restoration. It's kind of the, the four parts of the gospel and really the four parts of any story that's a story, right? That's, that's where we, 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 we find ourselves, what we see. And so we're, we're now in chapter two of this drama, looking at the fall. And, and we, if you come back to Jenga, what we're going to notice about how sin enters the world is crucial for how we understand how sin enters our world, okay? And, and what I mean by that is that uh, what, we, what we understand is, is it's tempting to, to look at Genesis chapter three and to focus just on the serpent. But the way that Genesis three was written does not invite us to spend really that much time at all focusing on the serpent. You know, because when we read in, in, in books of the Bible like Ezekiel and Isaiah, there's prophecies, 2 Corinthians 11, Revelation 12, 9, uh, even uh, Jude 6, we, we find out that the serpent is actually Satan who is a fallen angel who was in good relationship with God as an angel, but then rebelled and took a, a, a whole host of angels with him that are now demons. And this happened sometime before God created man. That's when this happened. Or, or sometime... Uh, before uh, the Garden of Eden. And so um, what we see is that he desires 
for mankind to experience the same pain of deception and deceit that he knows. But the only difference is there's no redemption for Satan. Only image bearers of God have the opportunity for redemption in Christ, not the fallen angels. And so how does he go about doing this is what we're going to be exploring today. The enemy doesn't come straight at Eve and Adam and and say, deny God and curse him and follow me. That'd be too obvious, right? No, he, he he seeks to weaken the environment of faith and trust with Adam and Eve's relationship with God to such a degree to leave the door open where they will, they will self-destruct themselves. And the way that I see it is the enemy is like pulling Jenga blocks out of the tower, just waiting for Adam and Eve to destroy themselves. And church, he does the same thing to each of us. His schemes have not changed, just his subjects. He does the same thing to us. He, he seeks to weaken your trust in God by manipulating the way that you understand his word and how you relate to God. He doesn't want you to trust him. He doesn't want you to trust God's word, to take it at face value. He wants you to doubt it. And this is where we see it it happening today. Because if the enemy can see, if he can sow seeds of mistrust in our hearts and convince us to agree with him, then our deceptive and naive work, our hearts will, will do the rest for him. So here's our big idea of where we're aiming Genesis 3 at today. That sin enters the world through an atmosphere of mistrust. And I think this is what makes the garden so horrific because it describes the erosion of a relationship of faith and trust in God and his word. So let me just tell you where I'm going. I've got three places I want to go from Genesis 3, just so you can, if you're a note taker, you can follow along. Temptation first seeks to weaken our trust in God's word. Temptation, secondly, becomes sin when it becomes a dialogue, not just a monologue. And and thirdly, sin leads to alienation with God, self, and others. So let's dig into that first point together. If you've got a Bible, open it up to the second or third page there to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'll read it for us here. Now the serpent, who we've identified as, as Satan, was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here's what we got going on here. God had spoken to Adam in Genesis chapter two. We don't know how long it was between Genesis two and and Genesis three. One of those questions you can ask the Lord when you get to heaven. But apparently Adam had spoken this command to Eve at some point. Either that or the Lord spoke it to her. But she has heard of the command. She's heard of the word of God. Now remember, the Garden of Eden is a world full of yes with one restriction. That's key to understanding what's happening here. Because likewise, your life in God's kingdom, under God's rule and reign, is a world full of yes with a handful of restrictions to protect you and to keep you in right relationship with them. So it's a world full of yes with, with one restriction, one no, and, and, and uh, here's what we, we see about this, this word crafty. This word crafty is the negative connotation of the word prudence. Prudence is a good thing in the Bible, right? The book of Proverbs talks about this. It's, it's about having wisdom. But craftiness is wise in a bad way. You know, kind of like 
He's, he's, he's an instigator. He can talk that guy into doing anything. That was me when I was a kid, by the way. I could talk people into doing anything, make them think it was their idea. I promise I'm not trying to be crafty with you this morning, though. And John 8, 44 describes really the nature of the enemy. He says this, he's the father of lies. And when he lies, what he's actually doing is speaking out of his own character And the the truth is he's been a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. That's been who he is. And remember, church, there's no redemption for Satan. So there's no hope like for you and I that could change. You know, we're all liars and murderers. We we hate people, which Jesus says murder. That is us if we're not in Christ. But in Christ, there's hope for us. We can change. He can't change. So how does he lie to Eve? Let's, Let's unpack this. He basically sneers at her. Do you know what it means to sneer at someone? It's, it's the type of humor that can, that can cut a room in half in an instant. You know, humor's good. Yeah, I think Jesus laughed. You know, I, humor's good, but it's the type of negative humor that can cut and divide a room in an instant. He basically says to Eve, come on. Come on. You don't really believe this stuff, do you? It's that type of negativity that's so easy to grab onto in a, in, a, in a group setting, isn't it? It's so easy to just absorb it. And he sneers at God. Come on, you don't really believe this, do you? And he, he twists the command, and he twists it in such a way that he uses a part of the truth without telling the whole truth. This is the deception, church, is that the enemy knows God's word better than the church does. And he uses parts of God's word to deceive the church. And he's been doing this from the beginning because Christians, when they hear something that sounds like the Bible, they'll just believe it hook, line, and sinker without testing it for themselves. And Because he knows this, he says, did God say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And, you know, Eve Eve comes back to him. We're going to look at that in a second. But he knows what he's doing here. He wants to see what's in Eve's heart. Does she actually know God's word? Or is she just kind of familiar with it? And so he walks straight in and makes an assertion. He wants to see if he can have that type of authority, the same authority that God has, to speak into their lives and to question the relationship with God. He wants to see if he can get away with having that type of authority in their lives. And the the truth is this, is that any lie that you hear, it doesn't take root unless there's something inside of your heart that already believes that God can't be trusted. John Owen, who was a Puritan pastor, an author, this is one of my favorite quotes of the Puritans. He says this, temptations and occasions put nothing into a man. So in other words, temptations and trials, circumstances, they put nothing into you. So that means that we can't say, the devil made me do it, mom and dad. Or we can't, we can't say, you know, if I was just in a different work environment, if I was just with some Christians, then that decision wouldn't have happened. 
Do other people have an influence in how we walk with God? Absolutely. Other people can't change your heart, only Jesus can. And so he says, temptations and occasions put nothing into a man. They only draw out what was in him before. So whenever you and I are tempted and we move past temptation to disbelief and distrust in God's word and we move into sin, our hearts were already positioned to sin is what he's saying here. And I think the scriptures would show the same thing. Temptation is just the bait on the hook. But the hook is always hidden in the bait, isn't it? Now, part of what's happened in the first temptation in sin is that because we're all made from Adam, we now have this same problem, that we're alienated from God because of what we've become. That, that in Adam, we have all found our identity and our spirituality, and we're all alienated from God. The, 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 this is the doctrine of original sin, which means this, that, that yes, as David wrote, even in your mother's womb, you were a sinner. So, you, you know, your little baby, as cute as it is, is a dirty, rotten sinner. You can just sing that lullaby, you know, it's a good one. Um, but that's the truth. And, and I, know, I know that we, our flesh kicks against this so hard because we want to believe that deep down that we're good people. The problem is that when we do this, we don't trust God. And Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection means nothing to us unless we get really caught sinning in a bad way, right? And therefore, in the day-to-day -day life, we live in the power of the flesh trying to knife fight with the devil, as we've talked about before. And it just doesn't work out. This is why the scriptures call the church to obedience, and then when they realize that they cannot obey, they have to repent. It keeps us near to the blood of Christ, which is the only place where you can have victory over the enemy. Amen? It's the only place. But here's what God has done with his word. He has given us a stronger word than the accusations of the enemy. Listen to Psalm chapter 119, verses 9 through 11. This is the longest chapter in the Bible, and do you know what it's all about? God's Word. You could read this chapter, and you, 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 it's so long that you're like, man, why is this so long? It's because God's Word is so crucial to the life of God's people. Here's what he says. He says, how can a man keep, keep his way pure? It's the question you walk in here asking this morning. How in the world can I sin less next week than I did this week? Right? Isn't that the question we leave every week, desiring that as Christians? We want to be holy as he's holy. We just can't seem to make it happen week in, week out. He gives us the clue here. He says this. He says, by guarding our hearts and our ways according to your word. That there is a certain attribute of God's word that protects us and keeps us close to God's heart. He says, with my whole heart I seek you. And then he, there's a refrain, let me not wander from your commandments. Remember that hymn? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? The story of my life, right? In your life. Prone, we're so prone to wander away from God, even though we know it up here. He says, I've stored up your word, not just up here, but in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Because there's something that happens when God's word is stored in our hearts and not just in our heads, Right? It leads us to obey, to obey him, and it leads us to joy. But I want you to notice how temptation begins with this agreement, this conversation that leads to an agreement that as the dialogue goes on between the serpent and Eve, 
that God's word might not have their best interest in mind. And this is always how temptation begins, to weaken the environment of your trust in God and his word, that God might be holding out on you, that he might not be giving you all the fullness of what you deserve. So let's look at the second point here. We see that temptation becomes sin when it becomes a dialogue. Let me, let me just ease our way through Genesis 3, 2 through 6 here. And the woman said to the serpent, remember he asked her the question, you know, did the Lord really say you shouldn't eat of any tree? So she, she responds. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She tells the truth there. But God said, you shall not eat of the, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as we know. Neither shall you touch it, lest, or you might die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Here's that sneer again, right? You can't, you can't be trusted. You won't surely die. For here's what God knows, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. True statement, right? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Kind of a true statement too. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, here's the descent. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So let's look at this. Let's look at the, the twisting of God's word here. I got a little chart I made for you here. Okay, so let's just walk through this. What did God say? God said, you may surely eat of any tree, right? Like I, like I said earlier, in a world full of yes, there's one no. There's an abundance of yes in the garden. It's so good that you can't imagine it. The serpent comes up and says, did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? How does he twist it there? He says, he, he, he makes God's word seem to be more restrictive than it is, right? But, but Eve responds and she says, you know, we may eat of any of the trees in the garden, but God said you shouldn't eat of the tree in the midst. And then here's two things that change. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, neither shall you touch it. Where did God say that? He did not say that. He did not say that. She's adding to God's word, right? Making God seem more restrictive than he is. Church, this is legalism. The church, this is the first evidence of legalism. Where you see, where we add to God's word and try to add things that have right relationship with them. And it makes God to seem this, like this oppressive God. God never said that. And yet Eve is justifying her decision because her heart is already gone. And then she minimizes the consequences of her sin. She says, lest we die. Or like, yeah, maybe we would. But God says this, for in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. There's no question. Eve says, yeah, lest you die. The serpent comes back and he really, he kicks down the door this time. He says this, you will not surely die. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't just stop there, but he goes on to describe the motive of God as if he knows God that way. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And what we see is that Eve, Eve's weakness weakens the consequence of sin, being death. She kind of minimizes it. It's not really something to be feared, you know. And then, and then, she takes it a and then the enemy takes it a step further to assert God's motive. 
So what the enemy is trying to do is to minimize the provision of God and to maximize the restriction of God. He wants to do the same thing in your heart so that you won't trust him. How do, I, how do we do this today? We do the exact same thing. When you, let's just say you're tempted with greed. God has provided, Jesus said the things that you should be concerned about for provision are what? Food, clothing, and shelter, right? He uses lots of illustrations and examples and metaphors in the scriptures to tell us about that, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, really everything you need, God is always going to give to you. The yes of God. There'll never be a day that I will not provide for you. And not only physically, but spiritually, I'll provide for you. And he even warns us of loving money and charges us to give generously. This is the restriction. So in a world full of yes, he says, be careful with money though, because it'll take your heart. Hook, line, and sinker. You won't think that it will. It'll start out subtle. You just think, maybe I can earn a little bit here, cut a little corner here and there. And before you know it, you are off a sheer cliff. Hook, line, and sinker, he will have you. And we blow right past it, and we covet others' belongings and give our life for the love of money. It's the American story, is it not? When it comes to sexual temptation, perhaps the Lord has given you a spouse, or if you're single, that you're longing to have a spouse and trusting that God will provide that person for you. It's the yes of God to experience more of his fullness in life, to, to fill the earth with his offspring. And yet he's designed a marriage to be a lifelong union of two people. The yes of God. Everything is together. Everything is whole. And yet, the temptation comes in when one or both of those parties say the yes of God is not enough. I've got to look outside to find what I really need. And we become discontent with God's yes for us. And we could go on and on and on about whatever sin it is for us. But temptation becomes sin when it becomes an agreement. And an agreement starts with a conversation. So Satan is having his way with Eve here. He's pulling out block after block. He's moving in slowly, right? And, and really, what is our theology? What is our doctrine of, as Christians? It is our battle plan against the enemy, is it not? It is. It's what we build as a defense. And what we see from the garden is that God has always, always desired for his church, for his people, to have a defense against the enemy. It wasn't sinful that the enemy could tempt Adam and Eve, right? God made the world good. That wasn't sinful. And he'd given them everything to obey, yet they didn't. Because God's word became twisted in their hearts, just like it does in ours. Our theology is a battle plan against the temptation of the enemy. It always is. And then the enemy makes this bold assertion of all. He defines God's motive. You know, think, if you think about your life, our doubts scream at us more loudly than any other time when we cannot see God's motive in our circumstances. When we cannot see what God is doing, when we experience what we experience, our doubts scream at us. And the enemy is always trying to define God's motive for your life. He's, he's always trying to weasel his way in there. They can be personal doubts. God, why have you let this happen to my family? You could have stopped it. Why did you not? They could be doubts against God's authority. God, I don't want to stop and observe the Sabbath. I'm not tired. I don't need rest. What I need is more money. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep blowing past this. 
God, this one little lie won't hurt anything. It's for the greater good of the relationship. God, I don't need to repent of this sin. It's not even hurting anyone. No one knows about it. The temptation in the garden is slow moving at first. It's a steady descent. And once the hook is set, the deception happens in an instant. And this is how sin is birthed in your heart. It's like going steadily down a trail only to get halfway down it and find a sheer face, a drop off. Listen to the saddest 10 words in the Bible right here. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. That's how quick the world and your world changed. Think about that. How often does that happen in your heart and in your life as well? It starts out as innocent, a little, a little manipulation here and there, and before you know it, you are in a bottomless pit. That's how deception always happens in our lives. My question as I read this, and it's the question you might have too, is where was Adam? The only evidence we have of Adam, the only reason you know he's there is because he ate the fruit. It's the only reason. He doesn't show up until it's already done. And Adam abdicated his design in this moment. And he let the word that he had received as the crown of God's creation. He received the first word ever spoken by God. And he passed on it, and it became distorted and manipulated. Because God's, when God's word is not treasured, and it's not held high in our hearts, it always becomes manipulated and distorted. Listen to the charge that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read it for you again, because it has everything to do with God's word. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Now, how does he, how is, how is the husband supposed to sanctify the, the wife as, as, as Christ sanctifies the church? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might, she might be holy and without blemish. Church, what does water do? It cleans you, right? It cleans you. It, it, it removes the, the filth from us. God's word on a sinner's heart has filth on it, and it must be cleansed. It must be protected. And in this instance, in the garden, Adam was not washing his wife with God's word. He was not doing that. And the temptation I'll just speak to men for just a second. The temptation for men is to abdicate our role to wash our families with God's word. The way that you do that is you have to know God's word and treasure it yourself. That's the only way you can ever do that. It's the biggest problem in the world today, I think, is the abdication of men to lead their families well. Not just in a, in a, in a nuclear marriage and, and nuclear family with their children, but just the just the generational sin that occurs when a man fails to lead the way God has designed him to do. In this, in this um, servant-hearted, word-washing way, and we're so guilty of it. 
the silence of Adam and the silence of Ryan and John and Quacha and everybody else, we're so tempted to be silent with God's word. But that's the really bad news, right? <laughs> the story doesn't stop here. And I, wanna, I just want to let a little light in here by asking you this question. Jesus waited 30 years for his father's go-ahead on his ministry, right? He waited 30 years working as a carpenter with his earthly father, Joseph. And when the fullness of time had come, as the scriptures say, Jesus' ministry began. The first thing that Jesus does in his ministry is what? Anybody know? This is where you can talk back to me. He went to the wilderness, right? First thing he did was not like go preach the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't do a big baptismal service, you know. It was to go to the wilderness. And why was the first thing that Jesus did to go to the wilderness? He set up a meeting with the enemy, didn't he? And he made himself just like us, right? The scripture says that he'd been fasting for 40 days. And guess what? After you fast for 40 days, what are you? Hungry. The scripture actually says that Jesus was hungry. I love the humanity of Jesus in this moment. And we see that he had to be made like us, as the book of Hebrews says. He had to be made like us in every way so that he could redeem us. So he meets with the devil in the wilderness. And the enemy tempts him in every single way, and he even tries to distort and twist God's word. And what is Je how does Jesus respond? With God's word every single time. He doesn't enter into a dialogue and say, well, let me tell, what, tell me what you mean about that. You know, well, uh, you know, just let me sit up here on the, on the pinnacle for just a couple days and just let me just see what it's like, you know. He, he doesn't give him an instant there. He doesn't give him any time there. It's fitting that Jesus goes out to meet with the ancient serpent because the kingdom of God doesn't advance unless the enemy's bound. And what we see in Revelation chapter 20, is what I believe, is that when Jesus went to meet with the enemy in the wilderness, is that he actually bound the devil. That, that, he, that he overcame him there. He would have to finish the work. And when he bound the devil there, the, the kingdom of God was wide open to go to the nations because the nations were deceived for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now we see that, that Jesus' gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for the world. And, and we see that, that he's making a way in this. And, you know, think about passages like this. The God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, we see these passages that talk about what the God of this world has done. And Jesus came to do something about it. We have power and dominion against the strongholds of temptation in this world. And most Christians do not believe it for a second. Here's what Jesus said his mission was to accomplish. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is being um, mocked by some Pharisees. He's just, he's just, cast, a, he's just cast a demon out of someone, and, and they're, they're accusing him, saying, this man cast out demons by Beelzebub, another word for Satan. And, um, and Jesus, he gives them a little light here. I'm going to actually read verse 28 before this to put in a little context. But he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons instead of the spirit of Beelzebub, here's what he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, it's here. That because I've cast this demon out, I've had authority over this demon because of my authority given to me by my father in heaven and by subduing the enemy, then here's what's happened. The, the, someone, uh, he says, verse 29, the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone entering a strong man's house, he's talking about the enemy here, he's coming into the world, he's entered the strong man's house, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is telling us about the nature of temptation in the enemy is that Jesus is the stronger man who has bound the enemy. Now, this does not mean that you won't be tempted. In the garden, Adam and Eve were tempted. This does not mean that the enemy will not bark at you. But he's lost his bite. The, the sting of death is sin, and it's been dealt with, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Jesus Christ is the stronger man, and he has bound the devil. And this is, this is the Jesus that we know, church. Christians have power over the enemy, and we're to cling to Jesus. For the sake of making a point, I want to exhaust you with God's word for a second. Is that okay? Can I do that? I want to read a few passages. 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to the power that Christians have in the spirit. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sounds like the garden, right? He's just changed animals, right? He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout all the world. The church here has power to resist him through faith in God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you think that you can go against the enemy without the, the spirit of God through the word of God, you're about to fall. That's what he's saying. You take heed lest you fall. For no temptation that you're experiencing has overtaken you that is not common to man. So you are not powerless over temptation is what the scripture is saying. I know it feels that way. It feels like a stronghold, but you're not powerless, he says. <clears throat> God is faithful when we're not faithful. God's faithful. And he will not let you, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist him. Life doesn't feel that way most times, does it? It feels like the garden, like the enemy is just having his way with us. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Notice he doesn't say that it's going to be easy. Instead, he says the victory is actually just making it through it. It's endurance. But so many times we think God has abandoned us just because it's hard. It's hard to stay the course. It's hard to walk faithfully. And we stumble and we repent and we come back to the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I will also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, you Corinthians, so that, and here's the key, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In other words, what he's saying here is that unforgiveness is a way that Satan outwits the church. Did you hear that? He outwits the church because we don't live under the blood of Christ when we don't forgive other people. Jesus says this over and over in the Lord's Prayer. Read that little addendum after the Lord's Prayer. He says, if you don't forgive other people, I can't forgive you. So he says that there's a way that when we live under the blood of Christ, when we live forgiven lives that are forgiving others, we're not being outwitted by Satan. We're not taking the bait. Lastly, Ephesians 6, probably the one you know the most. Paul writes this to this church in Ephesus, this Gentile church, for the nations, put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Do you, do you hear the effort? Do you hear the pain in Ephesians 6? It's not easy to be a Christian church. It never has been. And if it is, we might want to ask ourselves if we are Christians. Because our enemy seeks to devour our lives. And the Spirit's power gives us victory, but sometimes it feels like we're just barely getting by. And this is God's design. We should expect the contest. We should expect the conflict. We should expect the temptation. Adam and Eve didn't expect it. Not at all. So how do we do this? We wake up each morning ready to battle. Putting on our battle plan against sin through God's word and hiding it in our hearts instead of letting the devil win the day before we ever get out of the bedroom. And God gives us that power. I want to, want to wrap this up by, listen, by looking at um, how sin alienates us in Genesis 3-7. Scripture says, here's, here's what happened after they, you know, they, they took and ate. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and, and made themselves loincloths. Isn't this such a painful verse of Scripture? It's pathetic, isn't it? to go from walking in the cool of the day with your father without shame to wearing rags and living in shame. Such a, it's such a painful portrayal of the power of sin in our identity, not just our actions. I mean, the first thought that Adam and Eve had after sin had entered the world was this. There's something wrong with me. Is that any of you in here today? This is what you think when you wake up in the morning. There's something wrong with me. Something's not right. This is what happened in the fall. It's not God's design, but he's given provision in Jesus. What the enemy does in the garden is he casts a vision for a future foe life that's impartial and incomplete. He says, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, it's not a total lie. We see good and evil. The only problem is, you know, seeing good and evil is that we relate to it from a place of bondage. There's nothing we can do about it. That's the problem. That's what he left out in the garden. Put it this way. Before the fall, we were like two-year-olds that just got out of the bathtub. You know what I'm talking about? You got a two-year-old that just got out of the bathtub. They run through the house butt naked. They don't care. It's your problem, not theirs. And it's just this joy, right? This joy that just invades the house and everybody's just you're like, man, to be that innocent again, to be that joyful again. That was the design of God. Now, that's the furthest thing from our lives right now. We are, we are stitching up fig leaves and loincloths over every vulnerability of our lives now. So terrified to be found out. This, this alienation, it leads to this alienation from ourselves, from our identity in God. You know, they realized they were naked. And, and what happens is that the word shame isn't used here, but it's implied. You know, feeling guilty is about, it's, it's about a negative emotion you experience about something you've done. 
You've all felt guilty before. Feeling shame is the internal emotion you feel about your identity. It's who you are. But not only from ourselves, but from others. Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves, and for the first time, think about this, they were uneasy with each other. Just something just wasn't right. They needed to protect themselves from one another. You know what we do in the church so often? We can't trust other people. They'll just hurt us. From God, verse 8 that we'll look at next week, says this, they hid from the Lord. God was no longer a refuge, but a threat on their lives. You know, I've been thinking about during the pandemic, the whole death count thing that everyone tries to, well, it's a reality. I mean, that we get afraid of. We look at, we see the, we see the death count ticking up. Or you can think about, you can think about past wars, whether it be the Civil War or World War II, the, the just astronomical death counts. You know, the, the thing that makes the, the fall the greatest tragedy of all is that the death count is still ticking up. And Jesus has come to change that in the church and in the world. This is why Jesus was another man that came and said, take, eat, and live. Remember what Christ said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed? He said, take and eat of my body. Take and drink of my blood and receive my life in your place. Receive my blood on your behalf and live. The enemy never had the authority or the power to make Adam and Eve alive. Only Christ does. And my question is today, church, will you take, eat, and live of the garden or of Christ? Now, even as Christians, we, we just spend our time eating the forbidden fruit, thinking that it's not going to impact us. But the invitation of Jesus and his body and blood and his life is so much richer for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that, um, that we can know you, that our fall, that Adam's fall, Eve's fall, and our fall did not stop your pursuit of your people. Father, there are many in this room today, I would imagine, that spend most of their time and most of their thoughts on fig leaves and loincloths. And the thing that Jesus came to do, this, the reason you sent him here, was to set us free from the bondage of trying to save ourselves. Father, we believe that we can live again, that we can take, eat, and live of you through the work of your son. Would you help us to do that in a faithful way this week, Lord. And would you set us free from the bondage of sin? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.